welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we pick up the pieces on the G7 commitments and ask what was achieved in Cornwall. We speak to Warren East, CEO of Rolls-Royce, and we have music from Asher Monroe. Thanks for being here. So last week on this podcast, we presaged the G7 summit in sunny Cornwall. And now on what is effectively the morning after, we can pick up the pieces. And it was a mixed bag, in all honesty. On one side, a firm commitment to end coal in G7 countries and a $2.8 billion fund to help developing countries do the same. Obviously not sufficient financing for the whole task, but an interesting signal. There was also some clarity on net zero roadmaps, something the UK has been criticised for not doing. And the communique stated that G7 countries will now commit to setting out long-term plans and concrete pathways. There was also the G7 Nature Compact, which has a whole bunch of stuff in it about biodiversity negotiations. But critically, it commits G7 countries to supporting the goal of protection of 30% land and ocean by 2030. That last bit was expected, but they also clearly stated, interestingly, that this should not be an excuse for them or others to hold back on decarbonisation. So that's all pretty good stuff. On the other side, we saw no more details on the commitment that rich nations will provide $100 billion a year in financing to help developing countries. That was recommitted to, but honestly, that's pretty weak at this point. And there was a whole bunch of noise about the G7 alternative to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, an attempt to come together and finance green infrastructure around the world. But as the BBC reported rather wonderfully, this new Marshall Plan appears to have been invented at the last minute and without even the most basic of details. So, aside from scallops on the beach and tea with the Queen, there was also a bunch of other stuff that we'll get into. But let's start there. Christiana, how did you read this G7 in Cornwall? Were you pleased with what came out of it? Well, I'm impressed that you are so um, enthusiastic about it, Tom. <laughs> um, Always. I, I thought, uh, yeah, well, but well, I think we had higher hopes for this coming out of the um, yeah. ministerials, various ministerials that we had had, which were much more specific and in detail. Now, one has to understand that one's all of these issues go up to heads of state level by definition. They lose part of their sharpness and definition in detail. But I I thought this was pretty tepid uh, commitments yeah. on everything. Um, I was glad that they recommitted to 1.5 degrees. Let's remember that would not have happened a couple of years ago. So that's... Uh, a very good thing, including as well as the other list of issues that you have mentioned. But but you know, I, I thought, well, this this is a statement that, in its depth, in its commitment, in its determination, in its quote unquote stubbornness, to use our stubborn, optimistic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, definition is actually pretty weak for a moment that is as definitional as the moment that we are living. I was actually hoping for much more grit. Paul? Very fair comment, Christiana. And you've kind of a little bit taken the wind out of my sails because I was very excited about something. But it's not, <laughs> it's not that you're, I disagree with you because I don't, because you're right. 
Um, but I wanted to tell you that I got excited about something a bit different. I get excited by very, very grand narratives. And I don't get put off. When I tried to sell this concept to the Secretary General of NATO and he batted it off, um, I just come back again like a bouncy ball. So here's the thing. I can see the outlines of an absolutely massive competition between different ideologies. And I think that's really exciting. What am I talking about? On the 31st of May, uh, President Biden said, the mission falls to each of us each and every day. Democracy is in peril here at home and around the world. Now, here's what the G7 communique said. It said, we will harness the power of democracy, freedom, equality, the rule of law and respect for human rights to answer the biggest questions and overcome the greatest challenges. Now, what am I talking about? Why am I referencing this? It's a great I question. Think I've, <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you until next okay, week. Right. So just tune back. No, I'll tell you why this is important. I think one of the reasons why capitalism was successful but not abusive prior to 1990 was that there was an ideological competition with communism that caused capitalists to behave themselves to some degree and to communicate that they needed to architect a better society. We were in that competition. And then after the Berlin Wall fell, it was just like, right, capital is now going to demolish you know, the workers in every country. And that's been happening a little bit. And I think reframing the decarbonization of our societies as as a part of, of a, a defense and um, a living of our principles and our beliefs could be very, very healthy and could accelerate action. That's my hope. <laughs> I've got one nod out of Christiana and Tom just looking like he wants to I'm, no, I'm, I'm wondering how to respond to that. I mean, Christiana... Go ahead. I'm wondering how to respond to that also. I think I might have missed my target. No, no, no. It's a beautiful narrative. I think the problem is, though, that, you know, what you've just, you know, the truth is that we, what we wanted out of the G7 was something crunchy and specific. This is an emergency. We've got to decarbonize. We've got a few years. And what you just pointed to, which is a beautiful narrative, is part of the problem, right? There was flowery language around coming together and improving the future, but there was very little in terms of dollars. Here's what's happening. Here's the progress. Here's how we're going to decarbonize. So, yes and no. So I very seldom put things in um, war and peace language, right? Because I don't like the concept of war. But um, to make an exception to my own rule, I think this statement from the G7 is a peacetime statement. Mm. And we're not at peace right now. <laughs> we have got to be at war with carbon. And, and so that's my problem. That is my problem, right? It is just such a, you know, politically correct, nice statement. I agree with everything that is being done. Thank you to all stakeholders. We're doing a good job. I mean, come on. Yeah. And I mean, the, 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 I don't know if you looked at the images that came out of it, but the one that really got me and it got a bit of pickup on social media was all the world leaders kind of standing together, sipping champagne and eating scallops, watching the red arrows, which for those who aren't familiar, is a sort of group of of sort of Air Force fighter jets who fl that fly in formation over the UK. I mean, I know it's probably not that much carbon in and of itself, but just the symbolism of trying to negotiate climate change while watching this slightly frivolous display burning tons of carbon up in the air did look a bit weird. But I'm going to, you know, take my hats off to the G7 leaders. Um, 
in as much as they stick themselves out in front of the cameras and the media and people criticize them and there's an open and public debate and, you know, they're standing for elected office in a few years' time and all of that are part of the checks and balances that are important. And I believe systems are being tested here. And I would encourage the government of China to, to push forward faster with their climate change efforts to show the validity of their system. And I think we need to, on a war footing, Christiana, move forward with our democratic systems to show that we can decarbonize faster because there is a kind of challenge, an existential challenge, not in some zero-sum game between nations, but in a in a collaborative effort, all win, all lose. And I, I do think that you nailed it perfectly, Christiana, saying that the, the sense of palpable, not panic, but um, commitment to action was absent. So do we think that it was enough to get on, to stay on track to a good outcome at COP26? Do we feel like, because we said very clearly last week that there couldn't be a successful COP26 without a G7 that kept momentum moving in that direction. I think we've all agreed from this conversation, and if you look at the media otherwise, it, was, it wasn't knocked out of the park in terms of a positive outcome. But it also, I would argue, wasn't a disaster. So was it good enough to keep an ambitious COP26 on the table? Well, as, as you said, it wasn't a handbrake, but it also was no acceleration. Yeah. <laughs> There's a famous phrase, damned by faint praise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the bit which I actually thought um, was most indicative in a way, that in a manner that was unfortunate in terms of the overall intention here, was actually not from the G7. And it was from, I don't know if listeners noticed this, but... 24 hours after signing the G7 text, which was pledging to accelerate climate action, the British Prime Minister went on and agreed a trade deal with Australia. Now, Australia is, of course, a carbon-intensive economy that has no net-zero strategy. And the PM, the British Prime Minister, imposed no carbon border adjustment tariffs, granted access to a hugely high-impact agricultural sector in the form of Australia. And I thought that was an indication that this is not yet in the bones of government decision-making for all of the narrative, because they're also desperate, and this is a UK story, for trade deals. And that appears to have come ahead of any desire to actually, in a meaningful way, integrate climate strategy into trade policy. I, I think that the, 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 the reason why the, um, the, the governments are not behaving quite, you know, with the same sort of strength that we, we hope is, is that, that a parallel political architecture has grown up in the world. And it's it's got very big and powerful. We've got these parallel architectures that run our world, investors, corporations. And so starting to get um, uh, disclosure formalized on nature-related financial, uh, you know, solutions offers up um, this parallel force. So our governments our corporations, our investors, and increasingly our cities um, can act in unison to achieve these goals rather than us simply waiting for a sort of a national government to solve this problem on its own, which of course we realise it can't. And that's also why organisations like the United Nations are so important and indeed the OECD. Yeah, I, I, I take the point, Paul. Yes, definitely, you know, private sector and, and, um, and civil society have a role to play as we have discussed many a time on this podcast. But this was the moment for government leadership. Yeah. That's the point. Um, and, you know, this was the moment for them to step forward with, with two feet. Christiana, let me put, just push you a little bit on that. Let's say that there was the 
the commitment in the room that there needed to be and you had your finger on the pen of the communique, what would it have said? I think it would have been much more definitional. I want to use that word again on the hundred billion. We know that that's a problem, not just to recognize that, yes, well, we're committing to that. It's like, where is this going to come from? It would have been much more definitional on um, on halving emissions. If you look at the language to mm. 2030, it's, you know, it's, it, I mean, you know, Tom and I worked with language a lot under the UN. So we understand that there is very often a need for creative ambiguity, as we, uh, as we used to call it at the UN. There's just too much creative ambiguity in this language. If the G7 are not of one mind and cannot be much clearer about their intentions, especially over the next nine years, um, then what hope do we have for the G20? Yeah. This is the forum that can be most ambitious, should be the forum that can be most ambitious, right? It's all industrialized countries, massive historical emissions, plenty of resources and revenue. They should be blazing a trail, making this possible, demonstrating it. So I think there was some good bits and pieces in there, but it was kind of a bit of a mixed bag here and there. So I think it's disappointing. So let's just let's assume that there are, you know, 10 or 100,000 British civil servants working at the highest levels globally on this. Let's assume there are 50 to 100 political leaders working closely with the British government. Let's assume there are other almost unimaginable resources. What advice have you, Tom, and especially you, Christiana, got for those people between now and the COP to make it right? I think overall, Paul, much more of a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. And priority. Priority. Uh, you know, I would I would really like to see them operating, thinking, committing to something that really is an emergency. I just, you know, I, I, this statement to me reads like a business as usual statement. It does not read to me as a statement of a planet in a state of emergency. Mm. Well, I can see the world leaders um, advise. Thank you, Christiana and Tom. Uh, Now, um, on to other matters. Um, I'd just like to reference a little bit of listener engagement, if I may. And we're we're seeking um, 10 specific uh, reviews in the next week, if we possibly can. Um, I don't know if there's a prize. There ought to be. Uh, This one is from... On uh, Apple Podcasts, right? That's what we like. On Apple Podcasts. That's exactly what we That's what makes the biggest difference to the podcast is a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for everyone who does it. But uh, this week's news is that uh, hashtag Clay Crush continues to gather ahead of steam. Sarah B22 <laughs> via Apple Podcast Great Britain has said, I love Outrage and Optimism podcast, always informative, educational, inspiring, hilariously funny, brackets, I'm living for Paul singing, exclamation mark. Wow. Oh, Sarah. no. Oh, yeah. God. Uh, that's, that's opening up a whole new possible doorway of amazing that you said that quite close to talking about it being hilariously funny whereas i think there is a pretty serious aspect to my singing but uh, i actually have taken up a lot of time here so just to conclude uh this review i haven't got time to read it all but the guest and everything is completely blowing my mind this week uh sarah says i had the collision of my two favorite climate change podcasts with your interview with dale vince and i can't agree more with clay crush great work girls thank you sarah for noticing me trying to uh extinguish this uh guys thing it's girls and it's good girls are good nice all right thank you very much really appreciate that really appreciate all the ratings all the reviews makes a huge difference 
Okay, so this week we have a fantastic conversation for you with Warren East, who is the chief executive of Rolls-Royce PLC. Now, Rolls-Royce PLC is the aerospace part of Rolls-Royce. They produce jet engines in many of the planes that we fly on or used to fly on before COVID. He's not the head of the car company. Uh, Those are now separate. But nevertheless, Rolls-Royce, of course, this tremendous history of engineering excellence and have created many of the best internal combustion engines the world has ever seen. Now he is charged with taking Rolls-Royce into the future and with a future that's going to be very different from the past. We're just going to kick this interview off now. Christiana provides a great introduction right at the top end in terms of the context of what we're going to be talking about. So here we go and we will see you on the other side as ever. Here's Warren East. Warren, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, joining us here on Outrage and Optimism. I have to say, I don't think we have ever interviewed an organ-playing, top-performing world engineer. It is quite the combination, um, and we are uh, really quite excited about a, a very interesting conversation with you today about the future of aviation and how over history we see over and over again how Rolls-Royce has really been there pioneering from an engineering perspective so many groundbreaking technologies. To start with the Eagle engine designed by Royce way back in 1914 um, as a, a major contribution to the First World War. Then uh, one of your engines was the first direct transatlantic flight and first flight from England to Australia. The world's first Concorde flight was made using a Rolls-Royce engine on and on and on. So quite a few record-breaking contributions there to flight and would love to hear how do you assess whether climate change and the need to decarbonize all sectors, including aviation, is it also going to be a pathway to innovation for Rolls-Royce? We hear that you are launching a bid for the world record of the fastest flight with an electric aircraft. How did that come about? And does that actually signify your commitment to take your company, but also the sector toward electric aviation. Thank you for that, Christiana. For us, um, you know, flight has been part of Rolls-Royce for the last hundred years, and um, we very much see it as a as a good thing for society, people um, and, and goods being able to travel uh, around the world. Um, but it does cause damage to the environment. And it is one of the hardest um, sectors of all to decarbonize, simply because um, you can think of an aeroplane as a kind of 21st century equivalent of of a steam train. A steam train um, was a great sort of liberating thing when it when it happened. Um, and, and the source of fuel, the coal, uh, went along with the steam train. Now, we can decarbonize lots of fossil-based activities in the world today uh, because um, we don't have to cart the fuel around. Um, it's a bit harder where you have to carry the fuel around. And so in the world of automotive and and again, rail, for example, it's harder than in a 
purely stationary application, but it's much easier than the air because you don't have to lift this this mm-hmm. heavy heavy weight uh, up into the air. Um, it's a double challenge. It is a, it is indeed a double challenge, yeah. um, but it's one that uh, we have our heads around, and we've made um, commitments that uh, you know we're going to achieve net zero by twenty fifty, and um, we can see a way to do it, and there are different ways depending on um, on the type of aircraft. Um, the number of people or the load the aircraft's going to be taking and and how far the journey is. So you mentioned electric aviation, and we think that's a great answer for relatively small aircraft um, traveling a relatively short distance because the amount of energy that you need for that mission is is small enough to put in a battery. Uh, and so we can have and lift a- it up. And, and, and lift it up. And, and so we can have a purely electric flight. And that's, that's great. Now, if we want to do zero carbon, uh, for a longer distance, then we have to store the energy in, in another way, in a more dense way. Cause otherwise we just, we just can't do it because the airplane's too mm. heavy. And that's where you get into alternative forms of, uh, storage like synthetic fuel. Um, hydrogen will probably, play a role somewhere in in between as well but uh you know it's going to be very much horses for courses however providing you can get the energy into a stored form in a zero carbon way uh then we can achieve net zero carbon can you take us one level further in how does that look how would we store that energy in a zero carbon way what are your Right now, and obviously you have to try some out and discard some, but right now, which are the most promising technologies that you're looking at and investing in? So for short distances, as I say, we are investing in pure electric. It's it's battery technology. Uh, it, obviously, it's much more challenging than in the world of automotive um, because of the weight issue. And also, you know, dare I say it, because safety is such an important factor in the air. Um, you know, over the last 30, 40 years, air travel has become some 10 times safer in terms of mm-hmm. you know, just, just statistics. Mankind doesn't go backwards on that sort of thing. Mm. If you extract energy very quickly from the battery, i.e. a lot of power, which is what's required to lift a, a, an aircraft in, into the air, then the battery does get very hot. And, you know, that, that would be one of the, one of the factors, um, involved in battery technology. And that's why we're using the Axel program that you've heard about where we're breaking this or aiming to break the speed record. We're learning a huge amount from that, uh, from that project, which we will then apply into a more commercial world, um, later, later on. I'm, I'm pretty sure that your, your computers are so good that you know you're going to beat that speed record. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are, we're relatively confident, it, it must be said. Um, but, you know, it's, it's an important step on the journey, as I say. And, and you know, part of it is marketing uh, and it's harking back to the 100 years ago of Rolls-Royce speed records and so on. But um, you need to bring the people along with you. Mm. And so yes. you know, when, when we do this speed record, we're going to take um, 100 or so of our younger employees and, and they've all, you know, not quite a raffle, but there's, a, there's been some kind of a process to choose 
who, who gets to go to to go along to watch because it is going to be an inspirational event. Nice. Very cool. And you said it's going to happen within the next two months? Well, we don't want to be flying into the teeth of a roaring gale or um, you know, doing it in storms or anything. So, And we have, for safety reasons, a, a very rigorous flight test program that, that leads up to it. And so we have to fit all that in in, in weather windows. And uh, the test pilot who's going to do it is very enthusiastic. Um, he lo- he loves this stuff. He's uh, a big advocate of uh, of electric flight, and he's very much looking forward to it. Very exciting! But he can't wait to get up there. Are you going to be on? Unfortunately, this is a single seater, and uh, and I'm not qualified to fly. <laughs> but, apart from that, <laughs> apart from that, yeah. Okay. Well, very exciting. But um, I. That's that's one end of the spectrum. Um, other end of the spectrum is how do you take 350, 400 people across the Atlantic? Um, the stored energy there, we think, is going to have to be um, a synthetic form of hydrocarbon because we just have to get um, the energy density right up, much, much greater than what we can achieve in a battery today. And nature is uh, is probably the world's best engineer. Uh, and nature invented hydrocarbons. Um, now we have to be a little bit smart about it and make a synthetic version of a hydrocarbon so that, um, so that we capture the carbon from the atmosphere in the first place so that when we put it back into the atmosphere, we haven't actually added carbon to the atmosphere. So synthetic air fuels are, are, are a sort of a, a fantastic uh, intermediate technology. But can I just conclude on this electric uh, mm. airplane thing? Impossible question for you, Warren. Um, when do you think our listeners will first fly short haul on an electric plane? Well, um, we announced a design earlier this year with um, a Norwegian company. And um, you know, they, they're hoping to be transporting passengers in the middle part of the current decade. You know, tiny commuter type planes uh with uh, with passengers and then a lot of our commercial application of things like the excel will be in the so-called urban air mobility um these are essentially you know, flying taxis uh, think helicopters but think think uh now about um basically turning a helicopter into a very big drone that you see uh mm-hmm. flying around and um you know we believe that uh, the people will will pay for that, uh, and compared with mechanical helicopters, then um, you know there are advantages uh, as well as just the environmental advantage. There's uh, there's advantages in terms of cost and, and additional safety as well. I think what you're saying is um, the competition between short haul electric and trains that might be, and this is actually a form a, a question to you. Do you think that trains are going to win out short haul uh, transport for the masses of people, but then you will still have short haul electric for, let's call it, much more privileged people? Or do you see those two very different in cost and -hmm. therefore differentiating the customers? Well, I think there's going to it, it, it will probably both will will coexist. I mean, some of our electric hybrid activity um, is in trains right now. So, uh, so where we have a hybrid design where we're 
setting fire to some hydrocarbons, but don't forget they could be synthetic hydrocarbons. And we're using electric propulsion, so we're turning that energy and we're moving it to the propulsive unit in the form of electricity. From a commercial application point of view, there are there are many other players in the mix. Um, and so you know, exactly which one wins would depend on legislation. Um, you know, governments will make policy decisions. You've seen the French government make uh, make some announcements yep, very recently exactly. about, about rail. Mm. And... Now, I think policy is a, is a good tool for for forcing some of these things to happen that uh, that that need to happen, and then industry comes along with innovation and and finds solutions. So, can I just ask you about how you see your role in all of this? Because I think this is so fascinating to see the sort of the technological innovation that facilitates what's possible for this next phase of human evolution, right? Where we're dealing with this issue of climate change. And we would agree with you. I mean, the world should be very grateful for the benefits and the intercultural benefits that flight has provided. And it might well be that we can now crack some of these profound technological challenges to make flights, individual flights in certain cases, zero carbon, short haul flights with electric, long haul with synthetic fuels or hydrogen, as you said. But but the net effect for the whole of society, I'm, you know, we've gotten to a point now, before COVID, there was something in the order of four and a half billion passenger journeys taken on jets, you know, people going to mm. Benidorm for the weekend or flying to Cancun or whatever it is. And that sort of availability of flight has facilitated a kind of mindset that we can travel in a way that is different from the past, right? It's not like long journeys. It's quick drops here and there with enormous costs of energy. Do you really think if you go forward 20, 30 years that we can replicate that? We should replicate that. I mean, shouldn't we be creating a world where there's a technological change that values energy more and cracks some of these problems, but also that we value travel in a different way and we, we don't travel as much. We maybe travel further. It kind of goes along with broader cultural changes because if we just switch out the fossil fuel jets and put in electric or hydrogen, but just keep flying more and more all the time. That feels to me like that's another dead end that's going to lead to all sorts of additional problems in the future. Would you agree to agree with that? Um, well, I'm not sure I totally agree. Uh, I think it's very hard for us to predict. And I'm, I'm sure that the, the normal sort of course of evolution of society and, and, and norms will, will follow. Um, uh, you know, and a good example might be, say, smoking, uh, where, um, you know, if you go back 50, 60 years, then you know, aspirational thing, everybody, uh, everybody had to smoke. And then we discovered that actually, that's not too good for people's health. And, and now it's become, you know, not really that fashionable. Um, now, people may decide that hopping off to the weekend, hopping off for the weekend to uh, a holiday destination, um, mm -hmm. they just get bored with it and decide that, you know, maybe, maybe it's not so good after all. So I, I wouldn't sort of venture to predict how uh, society is going to change its mind. But as as an engineer uh, running um, an engineering company, I think that it's it's up to us to make sure that if people want to do that, uh, then they have a means of doing it in a way that you know, doesn't doesn't trash the environment as we've been doing with flight for the last hundred years. But what I mean, so that's a really good answer. But what I mean is like, 
does it not trash the environment at scale as well, right? I mean, you can fly the odd electric flight or hydrogen flight, whatever, and it's very low carbon. But if we replicate the current aviation industry at the scale that it currently exists with those solutions, is that still as good for the environment? Or do we reach a point where actually we just need to fly less? Um, Well, providing we can achieve what we believe we can achieve, which is net zero flight. So, you know, you get on an aeroplane, go from A to B. Now, the other bits of the system have to be joined up as well. So when you travel to the airport, um, you have to be able to do that in a way that doesn't trash the environment as well. Um, And, and, you know, when we come to flight, we shouldn't just be talking about people going Mm. off on holiday, right? We should be talking about how flight is used. I mean, even in the depths of covid um as as we are at the moment where you know pa- passengers are not getting on and off airplanes as as they were in in any way at all it's you know completely trashed from a business point of view but but actually there are still quite a large number of airplanes out there flying around um because they are carrying our goods um uh, around the world and they're carrying food around the world um and right now if um if somebody uh purports to say oh you know i'm going to make less of an impact on the environment i'm going to give up eating meat um but they continue eating avocados by the dozen in in london where avocados don't really grow <laughs> at least not yet but but you know even, even where avocados do grow i mean look how much water they use right. yep. to yeah. you know so it isn't just about carbon and um and you know it's about use of resources generally and um you know looking after the planet's resources in 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 the wider scheme and all I'm saying is we're attending to a tiny little piece of it with uh, with, with decarbonising flight. Um, there's going to be lots of other pieces to the jigsaw as well. And I think that uh, now is the time for society to get its head around having all the benefits that we've that we've sort of grown to love over the last um, several hundreds of years, um, but but have them in a way that doesn't trash the environment. So, so Warren, thank thank you for that that uh, excellent explanation and and your technology, Christian. I was talking about the long history. I, I know that uh, the, the the famous Spitfire plane with the with the Rolls Royce mm. Merlin engine. I remember I was talking to a, a very influential individual who who runs an airline, and I, and I mentioned, oh, you've got the same name as the Merlin engine, and he said, yes, I'm named after the engine. <laughs> but uh, so you, your 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 technology has clearly had a pretty big role in 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 in, in giving us an incredible. World world um can i ask you as a as a as a you know in in the extraordinary position you're in as we decarbonize the world how do you see the role of things like uh, the international civil aviation authority and national governments and uh, and and the international governmental system how can they best support you to make the changes you need i think they can play a huge role and um you know i think i think policy helps us a lot um to to make these changes um if I take long haul flight for a moment where synthetic fuels are going to be more expensive than digging out of the ground at the moment. So actually, people aren't going to use synthetic fuels unless they have an economic incentive to do so, as well as what we see as, if you like, a sort of moral imperative. Um, governments have to establish some policy that says we have to clean up. And then the regulatory authorities um, in in the world of aviation uh, need to say, okay, so that means the proportion of synthetic fuel that you're going to use has to transition from you know, what it is at the moment to 
100% uh, in a given period of time. And then I think they can probably go a little bit further as well. And notice I continually using the word synthetic rather than sustainable. Right now, you can you can be a, a business aviation customer and fill your plane up with sustainable aviation fuel and, you know, a, a bunch of crops have been grown to source the carbon mm-hmm. and crops have been used to extract the carbon from the atmosphere, which is fine for the scale of um, synthetic uh, fuels that are used today. But if we're really going to use sustainable fuels at scale, they have to be synthetic because otherwise we're going to need too much land to uh, extract the carbon from the atmosphere. Can you just describe for just exactly what you mean by synthetic? Because maybe not all listeners are familiar with that term. So, so so, what I mean by that is photosynthesis to capture the carbon from the atmosphere and then an industrial chemical process to take plant material, um, biomass uh, or waste, waste um, plant material and turn it into synthetic fuel. What I mean by purely synthetic uh, is capture the carbon from the atmosphere uh, with direct carbon capture uh, and then use, use that to create the fuel. So so we're not go, we're not using plant hmm. matter to uh, to do the actual capturing of the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So Warren, we would love to to hear from you in this spectrum between being outraged at the fact that uh, we are still so trapped in our traditional hydrocarbons and being optimistic about the fact that we can really revolutionize this. But from your conversation, I'm going to ask you to position yourself in that range. But I want to know how outraged or optimistic do you feel that we will be able to do, to successfully pursue the revolution that you're describing within the time frame that is necessary from a planetary perspective at a cost that is reasonable to use the word that you just used for reasonable and um, at a scale that industry can actually offer society. Within those three constraints, how optimistic are you? Goodness. Um, <laughs> no, I, 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 am, I am inherently optimistic about this. I, I've been you know, engaged in technology engineering forever. That's that's the career I chose. I'm sort of scientific background and uh, always been fascinated by by nature. And, um, you know, engineering is about taming nature for the benefit of society. Mm. That's my sort of mm. uh, tagline for it. And um, so that makes me inherently optimistic that um, the positive power of technology to uh, to transform our society is there and we've seen it time and time again and uh, I don't see why we won't achieve it this time and you know we're already making great strides and hopefully when we set this electric uh, air uh, speed record in um, in in a couple of months time uh, weather dependent a couple of months time <laughs> we'll have to see what the English summer brings um, then uh, you know, we'll have a little proof point that that we're on the way. I just wish I was twenty years younger, so that um, <laughs> so that I could sort of see a bit more of it through. Well, we're not younger than we are, and we have to do this within our lifetime, Warren. So, here's to accelerating this as uh, as much as possible. Thank you so much, Warren. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for the efforts that you're putting into the acceleration of this transformation. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Warren.
What a privilege to get to speak to such a range of different people on this podcast who are doing such remarkable things to change the world. Uh, some of them controversial, some of them less so. But this was a really interesting discussion about what the future might look like. What did both of you leave that conversation with? I, I want to go back to what Paul clarified right at the beginning, right? Because most people, as Paul mentioned, think of Rolls-Royce as a car manufacturing company, which it was originally way back in last century. But they split up cars from engines basically in the First World War. And that's what I think is so fascinating about this company and about Warren's leadership, that it was because of World War I necessity to manufacture air engines that they basically carved out a completely new space and went straight to top leadership um, of engineering in the um, in, in the airline industry. And because we talked about right at the beginning of this episode about we're actually at a wartime moment with carbon, I just think it's so fascinating that they have now basically come back to their commitment of stepping up and truly being at the front lines of technological innovation because of the moment that we're in. So it's just so wonderful to see a company go back to its historical roots, but looking into the future and assuming a responsibility to totally disrupt the airline industry for the kind of industry that we're going to need very soon. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I found it very exciting to talk to Warren um, because the electrification of airplanes is kind of one of the biggest and most important challenges we're going to face over the next 40 years, 30 years. You know, we've got to get it done by 2050 and it can be done. And you're right uh, about how important these engines really are. Um, I remember when I first started, I, I half mentioned this story in the interview, but I shall, I shall tell you the whole story. Um, when I first started working on climate change, I was looking at the, I was thinking about like when we last faced a crisis in, in the UK and there were all these quotes. I read a book, uh, Churchill's book about Second World War, and he kept going on about how we had lots of time and we didn't act. We had lots of time and we didn't act. And then finally, at the last minute, we acted and we built these planes, these Spitfire planes that kind of saved us from being invaded. And the point about the Spitfire plane is it had a big Rolls-Royce engine in it. And I was discussing this with a billionaire uh, called Merlin Swire uh, 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 some years ago. I was hoping he would support my charity. Um, and I told him the story about this and, and you know, the, the Spitfire that saved us and it's Rolls-Royce Merlin engine. And he leaned forward and he said, yeah, I was named after that engine. <laughs> but I mean, the, the point I'm making is that this stuff's really important. You know, there comes a point where there's a sort of nexus of kind of engineering and need that sort of defines our capabilities as societies and and will be remembered, you know, perhaps for 100,000 years. So, you know... The stakes couldn't be higher, and I hope that every ambitious physicist, chemist, engineer, designer, uh, electrician is thinking about how we can transform this critical technology, and Warren's got a very interesting job right at the heart, at the nexus of that. 
did you think, I'm curious to know your analysis. I mean, I pushed him pretty hard on the idea that we can't just swap out other types of fuel for fossil fuels and kind of carry on flying off to different places for the weekend, et cetera. And understandably, he sort of, I goaded him a little bit to agree with the fact that flying's got a limit and we, you know, we also need some behavioural changes. I actually hid when you asked him that question, Tom, because I was, I, <laughs> I was so, it was so kind of like against the spirit of the interview, but I, I salute you for asking it. Well, I thought we had to ask it and I thought he sort of ducked it and I can understand why he ducks it, but I, I sort of also feel like it would almost give him more authority as a leader in the world if he was also honest about that fact. He was like, look, the future has to be different from the past and that probably involves less travel that is more valued. And, you know, that's, he, I don't know. Do we think that that's the role? Should he have said, should he have agreed with that? Do we think to, in order to... Let me ask you a question, Tom. Should yeah. we have less giant super yachts? Should we have less giant super yachts? You heard me. Now you're Warren East. Yeah, I think we probably should. Okay. Same question though, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's nothing to do with the same question. No, it's exactly the same question. No, if I was actually. manufacturing giant super yachts, then it would be an importantly difficult question. But that was a defining moment, right, for someone like him to be asked, it's true that your product actually has created this problem. Do you think... Because, I mean, Levi's, and if you've seen the latest Levi's advert, but it's all about the fact that we need to buy less. Yes, they need to make it more sustainable, but we also need to change our patterns of consumption and drive down the amount that we buy, just buy and throw away. It strikes me that if someone like Warren wants to be a leader, he also needs to grapple with that issue. What do you think? You know, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, I, I want to think that he has been so focused on revolutionizing the engineering of flight that he hasn't really thought about the frequency of flight. And, you know, we've told the story, or I've told the story of, of this podcast of that amazing question that I got at the very beginning of my uh, term at the uh, Secretariat, Climate Change Secretariat, where someone said, do you think that a global agreement will ever be possible. And I blurted out, no, not in my lifetime. Well, that was the defining moment for me, right? Because I went, right, that statement that I've just made has got to not be true. And yeah. we're going to make it not true. I would like to give him the benefit of the doubt that he probably has not thought about that scenario. And... It would be really interesting to get back in touch with him and say, did that question make you think differently about this? Because in any event, we're going to need completely different airline industry mm -hmm. and a completely different yeah. propulsion technology, right? But in addition to that, because it doesn't deny what he's doing, in addition to that, um, did that question make him think differently about human behavior? Because he's coming at this from an engineering perspective. That's got to and be that's his role, married of yeah. then. Yeah. And that's his role. And and that's got to be married with human behavioral changes. And it's it's actually the combination of the two that will get us to a decarbonized economy. It's not just technology. And it's definitely not just changed human behavior. It's the combination of the two. Yeah. So the fact that he hasn't thought about the second is not surprising to me. I would be really interested whether he went back to his office going, huh, what about those behavioral changes? 
Mm. I mean, this is just so fascinating. I hope we can revisit it over and over again. I, I, I do believe probably we may end up with uh, forms of rationing uh, whereby, you know, there's a, so much energy involved in, in shifting people around the world that it's, you know, even if it's zero carbon energy, there's so much kind of, you know, steel t technology, maybe there will have to be limited rights to do it and those will be traded and, and people will be recompensed financially for not flying. I don't know. Um, because I think it's easy to pose the question, Tom, but it's incumbent upon us to also think what the solutions might no. be when, when we we put those limits there. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, the the if history is any guide, what is will happen is flying will just become incredibly expensive, which of course is socially regressive and is not the positive scenario there. And you just described a different policy instrument where it actually somehow gets rationed or there's tradable quotas or something. But net net overall, you know, there are solutions that might work for the individual airplane. But I think he's an engineer and he's solving his part of the problem. We try to get our arms around the entirety. You can solve things for an individual airplane. You can move it through the air at high speeds. But it's a different challenge to solve the entire sector because actually that has different systemic impacts. So unless either of my co-hosts have anything to add, we will leave it there. And we will, as ever, of course, leave you with some music. So this week we have some beautiful music from Asher Monroe. Works out of Malibu, California, and he's performing his powerful single, Midnight Masquerade, from his new album. Asher says this body of his work represents an awakening in his life. He says, I've been in my cockpit at nice cruise control. Now I'm ready to accelerate. You'll hear from Asher, of course. We're going to hand you over to him now. He's going to introduce and explain the music. Thanks as ever for joining us. Don't forget to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate all the posts on social media, but we also really need it on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. I think I've always considered myself a pretty optimistic person. I mean, we all go through rough patches, but it's usually the optimist who sees adversity as a challenge to overcome and not the final outcome. I honestly feel sorry for the ones who give up on themselves or their dreams. I mean, if we start to dissect the troubles or difficult times in our life and truly examine what's the lesson here that we're supposed to learn to guide and propel us forward and realize it's not a curse that we can't fix, then we will always feel like the victim. We actually have a say in the matter and in the flip of a switch, we can take a positive course of action. Optimists always find the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, the inspiration for Midnight Masquerade was to shed light on the dark secrecy of our society how a position of power is to be upheld with dignity, grace, and honor. A voice of reason who mediates the hearts and minds of its people, hearing the outcry of the damages made to our environments, the ecosystem, and social unrest. Instead, we have dictators who only relish in their own glory. Midnight Masquerade is about putting an end to the foolish and folly narcissistic minds who care more about their political agenda than they actually do saving our planet.
So there you go, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. The track you just heard was a live performance of Midnight Masquerade by Asher Monroe. It's a song coming out on his next album this summer, an album which has been praised by Sir Elton John. Have you heard of him? No, not that one, the other one. I've got a link to watch the two of them talk about the new album and links to Asher's music and socials in the show notes. So go check it out. By the way, did you know that Asher got his start as Chip from Broadway's first national tour of Beauty and the Beast when he was six years old? This next album is actually really influenced by his musical theater background. So if you like musical theater, this will be the album for you to check out. Thank you, Asher. Okay. This upcoming Monday, June 21st, we are hosting a live recording of Breaking Boundaries, Post-Growth, and The Future We Choose. And it's an exclusive event you need to sign up for. It's not going to be on Facebook. It's not going to be on Twitter. You're not just going to stumble upon it. You got to sign up and register. So how do you sign up? There's a link below for you. Go to globaloptimism.com and sign up for our newsletter. The invite link will come directly to your inbox so you can register for the event. 
We've had an incredible response so far, so please make sure you save your seat. It's going to be a great event. There's even going to be a Q&A section at the end, so our hosts, along with Johan Rockstrom and Tim Jackson, will be answering questions directly from you. And because it's more fun when you know what's going on, the link to watch Breaking Boundaries is in the show notes too. So hey, watch it this weekend before you tune in on Monday. Outrage and Optimism is a global optimism production. Our executive producer is Sharon Johnson and our producer is Clay Carnell. Global Optimism is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Marina Mancilla-Herman, Freya Newman, Santiago Monge, Sarah Thomas, Sophie Baggett, Sue Reed, and John Ward. And our hosts are Cristiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and Tom Rivet-Karnak. I think I need a name for the three of them, like the, like the three climate tears or uh, the trinity of stubborn optimism. <laughs> Lightning comes from the sky, something. Anyway, if you have suggestions, and I know you do, please shoot us a message, find us online, send them our way. Thanks. Thank you to our guest this week, Warren East. Rolls-Royce has email alerts for following their world record attempt, and we're going to need those because, as we heard from Warren earlier, even the CEO can't control the weather. So click the link I've added below to sign up for those updates, and you'll be the first to know. So, another week, another hashtag Clay Crush. Now listen, it's not easy being the center of attention, but while I've got you, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It takes a minute and lasts a lifetime. Five stars gets the word out, and we've been loving your comments and messages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, telling us how much you enjoy the podcast, but we need to channel them into Apple's review system for them to count towards keeping our podcast growing. And just so you know, we read every single review, and sometimes we even read it on the show. So go leave a review right now and tune in next week because you might hear what you wrote. All right, thanks for doing that. And at Global Optimism is how you can stay up to date on the climate. Please give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Thanks. Okay, that's a wrap on the show notes. This weekend is Father's Day, which I learned today is celebrated in over 100 countries. So if you're a father like me, Take this Sunday when everyone has to do a little bit more of what you want to do and watch Breaking Boundaries together on Netflix. (laughs) And of course, enjoy making some dad jokes as running commentary uh, because it's the one day everyone has to laugh at your jokes too. (laughs) Best of luck. Next week, another episode. Hit subscribe. We'll see you then.